uh, a minute about the Living Water Project, which hopefully everyone knows is a ministry of Otter Creek. Um, my computer here. Is it okay if I sit down like this? Still see everything okay? Um, started in uh, about 2001, and many of you have worked with us um, in that. Who are we? Uh, all volunteer run. That's one thing that we have been able to accomplish uh, since the founding. You know, the founding in 2001 was really just one person's idea to have clean water for one well, um, and it's turned into much, much more than that. So really, clean water is all you need to know. I mean, there's lots of other details that I can go into, but um, this one is, is really, it's, it's gotten better over the years. Since the founding of the Living Water Project, it's gotten a lot better, but there are still people that die every day from lack of access to clean water. Um, so they take, take whatever water they can get. You know, water is a very important resource in our lives. Um, behind breathing, it's probably the most important resource, right? Uh, you can't go very many days without it. And it's estimated 700 million people lack access to clean water. That stat, 50% of the hospital beds occupied by people suffering from waterborne illnesses in the world. And in developing countries, um, if you take out all the first world countries, it's more like 80%. So um, it's definitely an issue. But uh, we, we do have, uh, are able to work as part of the solution. So you can see 850 total water wells, and that, this is projects. So it could be um, a shallow well that's drilled, or it could be a large project that we work with, uh, other agencies with. 27 different countries we've worked in and committed uh, 2.5 million to clean water. Um, the interesting thing is when the organization begun, it was let's bring clean water to people. And it was called the Living Water Project. Obviously, the, the woman at the well uh, story in the Bible, that's where the name comes from. And this is really what's come out of clean water. It's a, uh, an entrance into people that have been unreached by any religion whatsoever. Or they've just uh, taken on the religion of wherever they've grown up. And dozens of churches, thousands of disciples, I'm Facebook friends with a few of them um, who every week they're baptizing people. And it's uh, this entry into clean water that really starts the conversation. Just a few pictures to show kind of the conditions. Uh, this one in the middle is really interesting. You can see where the rope burns as they've pulled buckets out of the ground um, over the years. Uh, there's Kevin in the middle. Kevin Colvett is part of our board. There's Zambia, so this is before and this is after. Um, this improves people's lives more than just keeping them out of the hospital. It gives them time to do other things in their life, um, education. Um, some, some stats are that women and children, um, children can't go to school because they have to go and gather water for hours and hours per day. Six hours a day, just think about six hours a day going to a water source back and forth to, to get water for your family. Um, here's Guatemala. This is our own Ben Camp, and this was a large project that was run by Solar. Um, this one is; these are interesting because, and uh, Stephen Modic can tell you all about these. The terrain is very difficult. They have water here, but it's not in an accessible location. So this is like a spring box or 
tapping some other source and then they bring it to these people um, in these mountainous regions. And of course the baptisms in the 55 gallon drum, anywhere you can get water, right? And this is full of well water from a living water project. And here's Niger. Um, the, the interesting thing is every time a project happens in a lot of these African countries, they have a huge celebration. And it's people that will walk from, you know, miles and miles around, days to get to these areas to celebrate. Because this, I mean, this is directly from God. Um, and they, you know, John Lee, who is part of the founding of the organization, and Kevin will be there for those celebrations. And, you know, they want to, like, pick these guys up and put them on their shoulders. And they're like, no, it's not us. You know, this is, we're just a conduit for, for this good work. So I think that's it. Um, but I will plug the uh, dinner. We used to call it an annual dinner until it didn't happen annually. Um, but we've had these dinners in the past. Uh, the dinner this year is October 25th. And uh, there's the RSVP there. You may have gotten this in the mail if you've ever been on our mailing list. Um, but it's just, it's really a celebration. It's obviously fundraising because every dollar that we receive goes to clean water. All volunteer run, we have no expenses, we have no staff, uh, we don't pay for brick and mortar, anything, so um, every dollar that we get. And we don't um, tell people that we can donate to their project or give to their project until we have that money in hand. So, you know, people ask, well, what, how much are you going to need to raise this year? We don't have a goal because God provides, and these people have a need, and sometimes we'll have a, a campaign and somebody will say, we really need $28,000. We'll have a campaign, and it'll almost match perfectly. And it's not because somebody said, you know, how much have you had, and I'll, I'll make it 28000 It happens that way, and God provides. So that's been an amazing thing to see. And this is me. If you want to contact me, um, that's the website as well. So I'll move on unless somebody has a question about living water. Brad, about how much is it per well? Is there any average? Yeah, there's an average of about 3,500. It kind of depends on where we are working. Um, if we're in uh, areas where it's easy to drill, you know, there's some wells that are $1,000 or less. But then the more difficult projects um, could be tens of thousands. And those are the ones we like to partner with other organizations and um, obviously get the buy-in of the local community as well. I mean, they need to have some skin in the game too. So... Uh, but yeah, it's over overall. If you look at all the projects we've done, it's like thirty-five hundred to four thousand. So that's a good question because some people will say, "Can I give to one well?" Or we uh, collect money for memorial wells as well. You know, there's a person that's been um, in, involved in Living Water and they want to have a memorial well after they're they're passing away, and we'll say, you know, around four thousand, depending on the country. So. Yeah, good question. What else? Yeah. Um, also tell them about you hire local people to drill the wells. That's right. It's not uh, living water. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, we have in-country partners, um, and we couldn't do the pro we, these projects without them. If we were to try to hire someone and go through that process of, you know, making sure that they're doing the right thing and not taking our money and running and, you know, those types of things, uh, it would be a huge endeavor. But John 
and Kevin and through all the connections that uh, some of you guys have made with other in-country partners, we've gone through a vetting process. We've had applications and we've, you know, known them for a long time and seen their, their track record. And we can just wire them money now. You know, this one person says, we, we need this much money for five more wells in Zambia. You know, no problem. We can do it uh, immediately, you know. And those in-country partners then are there to make sure that it's done. They know the people, you know, know how to get the resources and to get it done. So, yeah, that's a good point. Good. So, um, keep me on track as far as timing. I've got a clock here. It's 10.17. But I want to go about, you know, 15 or 20 minutes um, and talk about... Well, this is the end. I don't want to show you the end first, do I? Um, and then and leave time for questions because everybody has, you know, a variety of questions about this. But as Paulette said, I just was not, I was unsettled, you know, as a sophomore at Lipscomb University and decided I needed to take some time off. Didn't know what that looked like until... I would say 96, I was working in a backpacking shop uh, for a friend. So I was sitting around um, when we didn't have customers and looking at gear and reading books that we had on the shelves and those types of things. Appalachian Trail was one of those. And it was one of those that I knew about the Appalachian Trail, which I'll tell you more about it, but I knew about it and knew that it was out there, but never really thought, oh, I want to, you know, get on the Appalachian Trail and hike some someday. Um, but once I started reading this book, it was like, oh, this is actually something that people do. I mean, this is something that you can put a backpack on your back and go for six months and hike the entire trail. So it was really that reality, plus my unsettled uh, tendency in college to say, you know, I need to take some time off. And it was, well, I could work and I could travel. I could do something physical, you know, and all these things, all these ideas swirled in my mind. And like Paulette said, I came home one day and was like, so I'm going to take some time off, and I'm going to hike the Appalachian Trail, and it was not met with uh, uh, much, much acceptance at the first, uh, only because, you know, I, it took some time to educate mom and dad about it um, and convince them that I was going to do it, you know, one way or the other, right? So, um, but yeah, so the, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Um, being in Scouts and really being... Um, outside and those sorts of things, I, I really thrived, um, you know, camping and backpacking and hiking and those types of things and just being outside. So um, it, being an environmental scientist is, is really fits me well. But um, so I had some of the skills. And then even in high school, late high school and college, um, we, you know, buddies would go, we'd go to the Smoky Mountains for the weekend and um, those types of things. And I always found that I was always the strongest hiker, or at least the one who had it kind of together between the ears in that, well, we're in a difficult condition, or there's this difficult situation that we have to make a decision, and it was kind of always not a big deal to me. You know, I kind of just said, you know, we'll, we'll make this happen, and we'll get this done. In fact, if you've been to the Smokies, Lacante is one of the peaks there. And I went with friends in college, or no, this was late high school, I guess it was between high school and college. And we went with a group and you know, we were all prepared and we had all the right gear and all those things. 
but it started raining and it got cold really quick and we were you know slogging up this mountain and sure enough we were not going to make it to the top and I said okay how about you guys stay here I'll take our packs to the top come back for yours and we'll walk to the top together and try to convince them and they said no let's just camp here so we camped right in the middle of the trailer there was nowhere to put our tents up and it was a miserable night and just horrible conditions and sure enough the next morning we get up and the peak is like a 10 minute walk <laughs> we, were, we were right there you know and this is this is really before uh, the cell phones and the apps and the gps that we have today so i'm looking at the map going I can't tell where we are right now. You know, I think we just went around this turn and I think we're really close, but anyway. Um, you know, and I stayed pretty calm through the whole situation. It's kind of like, through these kinds of trips, I, I knew as I was thinking about the Appalachian Trail, I'm like, I think I got this, right? I, I mean, I didn't know what I was getting into really. Um, there's no way to prepare for the Appalachian Trail except for hiking every day for weeks and months. So, um, but I, I knew that, you know, I had something within me that uh, I feel like the attitude and the, just the common sense of being out there would, would do me well. So, um, so where was I? Yeah, so the Appalachian Trail, uh, Paulette said it was 2,190 miles. It was actually 2,160 when I did it in 1997. Um, it's actually changed... Uh, over the years. So they took some of the trail off of roads and they put it into the woods, you know, as they acquired land and those types of things. The Appalachian Trail okay. is a part of the National Park Service, um, but it's an independent group called the Appalachian Trail Conservancy that manages it. And they have, I think it's 31 or 32 uh, maintaining groups, you know, along the way where they have staff and they have, you know, people uh, helping to maintain the trail. So anyway, um, through really the last 25 years, they've, um, I think they have 99 point something percent that is uh, public land. So it's either owned by the uh, Appalachian Trail, Na National Park Service, those types of things. Um, when I was there, when I did it in 97, it was like 92%. So there was a lot of it where we would come out of the woods, out of a park or a state park or a national park, and have to walk along a road or have to walk along a person's private property and they would have signs up and say, you know, no camping here or something, so you'd have to walk a few miles to get through. Um, but yeah, they've done a really good job since then and uh, there's not a lot of road walks. There's, there were a few in 97 that were dangerous and, you know, difficult on a hot day to walk on the road for multiple miles. So. Um, so yeah, the Appalachian Trail has grown over the years. That's what people ask me. Well, do you want to do this again? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Be have, taking six months out of your life is a pretty big deal. But at the same time, it would be a new trail. I mean, <laughs> there's there's a lot of a lot of sections that I've forgotten, um, and a lot of sections that have changed over the years. So that would be kind of fun. But so wh where is it from? Where to where? Yeah, it's from Georgia. So just north of Atlanta, um, it's called Springer Mountain. And it's in a state park, uh, starts there. It was um, originally planned for Mount Oglethorpe, which is, I think, the tallest peak in Georgia. And it got moved to Mount Springer for political reasons, but um, it goes all the way through 14 states up to Maine. Yeah, the middle of Maine, which is uh, Mount Katahdin. Wow. And it's also in a state park, Baxter State Park. 
Um, yes, through 14 states. Um, it comes within 50 miles of New York City itself. Um, it crosses through uh, dozens of towns. So there are a few towns where the trail goes right down Main Street. Um, Damascus, Virginia is one. Um, uh, Hanover, New Hampshire is one. So yeah, there's a lot of times where you're walking just right down Main Street. and um, There's a dozen or so, they call them trail towns, where the town that themselves are really centered around welcoming through hikers and stuff. So, um, yeah, so uh, this is day one. This is March 1997 um, with my family. I guess, Dad, you were taking the picture, maybe. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was there. Um, and uh, I think the, the stat that you gave about the 4,000-foot climb, I skipped that part. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the beginning of the trail is at the bottom of a hill. Um, actually, the beginning of the trail is at the top of a hill on top of Mount Springer, but you have to get to the top somehow. So if you come to the, the ranger station at the state park, they say, oh yeah, the trail starts up that way. And so it's an eight mile, 4,000 foot climb. And I did a little research ahead of time and I said, what if I didn't want to do that? What if I just wanted to start right on the, the beginning? And sure enough, there's a forest service road that actually goes a mile beyond the beginning of the trail. So we parked there and ba hiked back to the, the start. So anyway, um, I did a lot of research. I mean, months and months of research and reading and talking to people. Um, the Cumberland Transit and there used to be a, a store called Blue Ridge Mountain Sports. There were guys there that had done it before and women. And so I went in and talked to them on pretty regularly on a weekly basis. Um, and, you know, kind of honed what I was doing and how I was doing the gear and how I was doing, uh, I did mail drops. So um, instead of relying on the local grocery stores to, um, to resupply, I did, a, I think, 20-something mail drops where we packed boxes ahead of time and then mom and dad would send them on a regular schedule. Or I would call them from pay phones and say, hey, send this box. I'll be in this next town in two weeks. And, um, and the post offices in those towns will hold hold those packages for us. So, yeah, there's a lot to, lot to tell you all. You know, there's a lot, lot of stuff here. I knew you couldn't have carried it all. No, no, there's usually three or four days worth of food in your backpack. Um, and you can see the backpack I have here. Large. Yeah, so the first day, you know, I uh, weighed the backpack, or I had everything that I needed, I thought, and I weighed the backpack. It was 65 pounds, which is very, very heavy. Yeah, I mean... I was only probably 165 pounds <laughs> at the time, um, but you know, I thought this is the gear that I really need in case of emergency. I mean, with the scouts, it's be prepared, right? Um, and I quickly found out, and if you've heard any of these stories before, you really find out what's important you know, when you carry something in your back for miles and miles every day. So I had a lantern that you, know, you light a candle and there's a little lantern, I thought, that would be really good to have, so I, I saved batteries in my headlamp. I didn't use that thing once or twice. I thought, that's worthless. You, know, you can't read by a little candlelight. So um, I, I got rid of a lot of stuff, one of the first towns that I came to in uh, Franklin, North Carolina. But yeah, 65 pounds because I overpacked. I had too many things. You know, I had like two or three pairs of um, pants, and even in the coldest, you know, 20 degree weather, I didn't need pants. 
my, my legs were creating heat to the point where I would get hiking, you know, 20 or 30 minutes on the trail and I'd be warm and I'm carrying all this stuff for no reason. So you kind of learn like, um, I don't need all of these things uh, to really get me through. Now, there were a few days where it did snow and it was a really difficult situation where I was glad to have a few things. But um, So I found out, this is, uh, this is really a picture to, to show there's a, a trail family every year. So every February, March, April, there's a, a bunch of people that try to through-hike the Appalachian Trail. As Paulette said, the, um, the statistics say about 25% make it all the way through. Um, but recently, it's about 20% because a lot of people go uh, because it's so accessible. It's so, you know, people know about it and can just go buy things and just go to the trail. Uh, you, you, you hear these stories of people quitting their job, selling their house, you know, filing divorce, and then hitting the trail <laughs> the next day. I'm not kidding. And... And they go to the local, you know, camping store and just buy stuff and just start the trail. So there's a lot of those folks in those statistics as well. But I think uh, the trail family is one of the most important parts of the Appalachian Trail. If you were to do it um, today or any time and not have, you know, sort of that uh, people watching out for you, um, just that community, those types of things, I think it would be pretty lonely. I mean, there, there were lonely parts any, anyway, but... Uh, yeah, this this is a good picture because this is at the very beginning. This is a. So you didn't have a buddy or anything. To no, okay. no. When I was in the planning stages and stuff, it was kind of like I was talking to friends and I was reaching out to people through um, those other through hikers that had done it, and it was just kind of like it's going to be too difficult to you know to really find somebody to take six months off and even college student, and I'm glad that I went by myself because a lot of people split up. Um, unless they are, I mean, even married folks will say, hey, I still want to stay married to you, but we don't hike the same. You know, we hike different speeds and we like different things. We have one person that wants to smell the flowers along the way. And the other's just like, I want to get the miles. I just want to get it done. Um, so this, uh, this guy right here and this lady were together uh, and they were doing it for the American Cancer Society. And they had like events along the way where they had people coming and they were, you know, fundraising and stuff. Even that they didn't stay together. Um, so there was a lot of a lot of that out there. Um, so you really find your trail family and you find people that hike the same and like the same things. Some people go into town to resupply and they'll stay for two, three days a week. Um, Others like myself, I wanted to get out of town as quickly as possible. I wanted to sleep in a nice bed, maybe one night, but then get back on the trail and, and get the miles. So um, this is just representing, this is the blaze that you see on the Appalachian Trail. It's two by six inch blaze. And the when it was started back in 1937, you know, they had like a, a metal piece or, you know, something they would put on and those would get stolen or the tree would grow over it or whatever. Um, so they said, we're just going to do a blaze like this. And today, the concept is you stand at one blaze and you're able to see the next one. And you really don't need any maps. You don't need anything at all to, to start in Georgia and go all the way to Maine or vice versa. Um, now, there are some sometimes that I'll tell you about that are a little more difficult. But So these are uh, shelters along the trail. 
Um, a lot of people ask, you know, how did you, where did you sleep? You know, but they have more than 200 of these shelters. Some are pretty crude. Mm -hmm. This one was probably built in the, you know, 50s or 60s. And that one was fairly new in the, in the 90s. And, you know, a lot of people congregate towards, towards those shelters because some people don't uh, carry a tent or hammock these days. And they just rely on these shelters to sleep in. So um, that was kind of interesting. And this is kind of part of the community, too, which I kind of turned into a ministry of my own. I mean, I didn't go thinking I was going to be a missionary, um, anything like that. But I, was, I tried to spin everything positively. And through that, I kind of took the Philippians 4.13 as a verse that I was going to put in, they had trail registers. So every one of these shelters, you had a register to just kind of check in and say, hey, watch out for the porcupine that lives underneath the shelter or whatever. But I would write encouraging things, encouraging notes. This is one of the, um, the shelter registers uh, that I actually put in a shelter when one was full, and then somebody sent it to me after it was done. So... Um, it's kind of a cool way to, you know, communicate along the trail. This is pre-cell phone, too. So, I mean, 97, there might have been some cell phones, but if you had taken one out on that place of trail, there would be no coverage whatsoever. So it would just be a, a worthless brick. So... What do you do about trash? You carry your trash. To where? Leave no trace. Yeah, anything that you take in, you take out. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And then the next time you go resupply, you find a trash can and throw it away. What was your trail name? So that's a good question. Yeah. So every person on the trail, not every person, but a lot of us had trail names and still do. Um, when I started in March, early March, there were three brats that were all within a few days of each other. So it was like, well, are you the, the dark haired curly brat? Are you talking about the tall brat? Are you talking about, you know, whatever. Um, so we all get trail names, which is a, a personality trait or it's, you know, something from your past that, you know, kind of <clears throat> describes who you are. And I, I couldn't think of a trail name. I mean, about three or four days into it. Okay. Are you optimist? Yes, I'm optimist. Okay. So I was sitting, I was sitting actually at this shelter right here, and this lady is from Portland, Maine, and she said, well, let's sit down and talk about, you know, your personality and what, and she kind of pulled everyone else. What, what do people think about Brad here? And there were a few people that were just like, well, he's encouraging, and, you know, he... He tells us about this, and you know, um, she said, "What? What did you? What have you kind of reflected on the first few days?" And pull your journal out. Let me let me see it. So I pulled the journal out, and the first journal entry was me um, speaking all the fears that I had about the trip. But I said, you know, even through all this, I know that you know. Uh, God will provide, and I'm very optimistic. And I did like, you know, all caps, optimistic. And she saw that, and she's like, I think that that's a good one right there, op optimist. And I was like, okay, yeah. So a few others were like, yeah, that's a great one. That's a really good one. Um, and it was, I mean, I think I was a stronger hiker, so that uh, there were quite a few people that said, um, oh, you know, my legs are really hurting, or I didn't know that backpacking was so hard. And it's like, well, just, you know, keep one foot in front of the other. And, like, we have uh, the data book uh, in 97 that tells us every road crossing, every creek crossing that you can get water, those types of things. You know, I would look in this and be like, 
it's just another half a mile and we're going to be at this place. You know, you can take a rest then. So I was, I was trying to be encouraged along the way and um, it turned into, I was uh, Opti or Optimist or Opti 413. You know, people would catch up to me from behind and be reading the shelter registers. Um, I had two guys that were, had just graduated college catch up to me in Dartmouth, uh, not Dartmouth, from Dartmouth, but in uh, Damascus, Virginia. And the guy was like, I haven't met you yet, but you're Opti 413. He said, wait, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I'm like, yeah, you got it. That's right. He said, I've been reading that in shelter registers from Georgia, all the way from Georgia, for a month. So um, kind of in that way, I was able to, to minister a bit to people. Um, I'll tell you a story about something else. But these are other pictures of the Appalachian Trail you think in your mind is just in the woods. Well, you're crossing major highways. This is one of the nicer crossings at a major highway. Others you have to, you know, frogger across to not, try to not get hit. These are called punchians, which are just boardwalks across, you know. Um, instead of taking the trail off around a swamp, they just go right through. And they're really nice. They're really fun to, to hike on. And some are under boulders. This is a, a, a one-mile section in Maine that is called the Mahusik Notch. And it's just where the end of the glacier kind of stopped. And all these huge boulders are just piled on each other. And they put the trail right through the middle of it. So you can climb over or you can climb under in, at certain places. And that, that, they say, is about the hardest mile because it just takes the longest. You know, um, a mile I can hike in about 15 or 20 minutes. This one probably took an hour and a half. Something like that. You know, pack off. You're pushing your pack through or pulling it through. Those types of things. Uh, and you'll see my hiking stick here, which I brought in for a prop today. Yeah. So not, uh, not very cute, um, but very effective. Um, this is one that um, I, I was going to say as well about the statistics. A lot of the people that don't make it on the trail, it's really because they, don't, they're not, they just don't have the desire. They just don't have enough desire. They say, what am I doing out here? Or I've done a month and I've proven to myself that I can do that much, so I'm going to go home. Um, I was reading something this week. It said 67 to 70% say that it's a minor or major in injury that gets them off the trail. But a lot of minor injuries, um, you know, you can really take some time off or take a load off or something like that and heal. And this is one for me where I was coming out of Hot Springs, North Carolina, and I felt something in my leg, kind of like a stress fracture feeling or, you know, I don't know what it was because I didn't, I wasn't going to go to the doctor. But I picked up a stick that was about this tall. And I said, I'm, I'm not stopping. I'm just going to keep going. And so if I was limping for a little ways, that was fine. Um, obviously, the stick got a little shorter because I used it along the trail until I met a friend in Pennsylvania that had a uh, piece of copper pipe that I was able to put on the bottom and stop the, stop the uh, breakage on the bottom. Uh, but I used it the entire way. I mean, it, I say it saved my life. It, it helped me stay on the trail. And there were a few instances where it caught me in times where I would slip or were in a, a difficult situation. So that's... Uh, Can I? Yeah, Can I sure, sure. Can I see how heavy it is? Oh, wow. It's not very heavy. 
it's not, well, it's heavy enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's talking. Yeah, right? these, these days they have like uh, ski poles, you and know, how, hiking poles. And, and it's just smooth from your hands. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Many miles in my hands. Um, here's more pictures of the trail community. This is us waiting for a hitchhike, uh, which is a common part of the Appalachian Trail because a lot of the resupplies that are off of the trail are two, three, four miles away. I'm not hiking two or three or four extra miles yeah, off the trail to go get a can of tuna. So I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get a, a hitchhike. And you know, for people who have never hitchhiked before, me, before the Appalachian Trail, you think, well, that's pretty dangerous, right? Yeah. No, it's those trail communities that these guys are going home for, from work or something and they see you and they're like, yeah, get in the back of the truck. And then going out of town, getting back to the trail, same thing happens. You see people, they know that through hikers are doing that. So there, there's a, a thing called trail magic. People will go out of their way to set out a, a six pack of Coke, to set out you know candy in a cooler on a trail crossing or to pick you up or to invite you for dinner. Um, I, have, I have friends who did. Absolutely. They would do that. Just, it, it is magical because it usually comes at a time when you don't expect it, and it's at a time when you really need it. So, um, a lot of trail magic. This is in Shana, the Shenandoah National Park. What an amazing park for through hikers. It goes right along the Skyline Drive, and there are, um, you know, lodges and stuff. You can pop in and have breakfast and lunch and not have to carry as much and get calories. I was burning five or 6,000 calories a day. So it was very difficult to even carry that much. This is uh, one of the guys I talked to you about in Damascus. This is one of the high points, Mount Washington State Park, which is in uh, the White Mountains in New Hampshire. And it was very white that day. Uh, I am a member of the Half Gallon Club. I ate a half gallon of ice cream in one sitting. <laughs> <laughs> Cookies and cream, if you wonder what, what kind. Uh, it was actually fairly difficult. Uh, it was a lot, of, a lot of ice cream on a hot day in Pennsylvania. Um, and I just put this in. I thought it was a cool picture. You can see I had a lot of hair back then. <laughs> but there, there were times of solitude as well. There were lots of times of solitude and loneliness. Um, there were only a few nights where I was by myself, but throughout the day, I mean, you wouldn't see anybody at all some days. And so, yeah, yeah, you had to really get through that as far as the loneliness goes. This was a, a place in Vermont. This guy right here uh, <clears throat> uh, builds and repairs church steeples. Dan Quinn, I don't know if he still does or not, but he bought this property um, a couple years before I threw out the trail. And he said, I want, I want to have thru-hikers at my place, but only by word of mouth. I don't, I don't want to advertise it, you know, and charge and all this kind of stuff. So there's just a note on a, a piece of paper on a, uh, you know, a trail marker or something. I'm reading it like, at the next crossing, turn left and come, come see Dan Quinn. And I'm like, okay. And so we all went, went there. It was the, the coolest place for two or three days, you know. He fed us. We worked on his house. We got to sleep in his barn. He gave us his uh, van to go take his canoe. And, you know, it was just like a respite from hiking every day. So um, it's a pretty neat community that's out there. 
Last, last story, I think. This is, uh, in, this is a place called Sunfish Pond. It's right outside of Delaware Water Gap, Pennsylvania. Um, it's actually in New Jersey, of all places. But I had a run-in with a bear. Um, so there were signs everywhere that said, bears, you know, approach with terror and fear. There are bears here. Um, put your food in these de designated boxes or hang your food in, in a tree, which was not unusual. Um, if I wasn't in a shelter, I would hang my food and everything that smelled just to keep the critters out of it. Because if you had it in your <coughs> tent or, you know, in your backpack outside of your tent, you'd have mice eat, come and eat your stuff and chipmunks and whatever. So I put everything in a tree the night before um, and had to, instead of camping where they had the nice uh, bear boxes where you put everything in, I had to hang my food and, and sleep in my tent. So uh, about 5 a.m. that morning, I wake up to a noise. <clears throat> I didn't know what it was, so I, I hit the tent and roll back over. Sometimes it's a possum or raccoon or something just sniffing around, and it's, it's still there. I didn't scare it away, so I hit the tent again and try to go back to sleep. It's still there, and sure enough, I turn my headlamp on, I'm laying like this. I turn my headlamp on like this, and there are two big eyes of the bear that was just a few feet away from my head. So I I uh, stored my backpack with a few things in it in the vestibule in the front part of my tent. Everything else that had a smell to it was up in a bag. Well, I had pots and pans that were still in my backpack. I also had a fuel bottle and a water bottle that were still in my backpack. Now, I had cleaned these things, and the bear should have known that I had cleaned these, but apparently there was still a smell on them um, that, that he or she liked. So uh, I wake up to those eyes, and then the bear scampers away with my backpack, which had my Gore-Tex jacket in it, which had my camera in it, which had my money in it, which had, you know, these things in it. I was very, very mad. This was 5 a.m., couldn't see anything. And the headlamps back then were like, you know, they would shine about three feet. I couldn't see anything until, until light. I was getting upset this entire time, being woken up at 5 a.m., where, you know, I was usually sleeping a little later. And uh, so I started throwing rocks at this bear. Maybe not the best idea. <laughs> but I did have a big staff, right? So I was, I was 19 and pretty confident that I could fight off this 500-pound bear for the staff. Anyway, it worked out to my, uh, uh, even though I made some bad decisions, but the bear didn't, didn't care about me hitting it with baseball-sized rocks. But when I started throwing the rocks and missing, that's when the bear kind of stood up and was like, what was that? And I threw rocks down a ravine, and the bear got up and followed them. Now, the only thing I can think of was what they call, it was a trash bear. So it's used to humans, it's used to getting handouts from humans, and it thought I was throwing food to it. Well, these are pots and pans that it found and uh, actually put teeth marks in, in the top. I still use those pots and pans today. They, they work great. Um, luckily, didn't, didn't puncture them. Um, but I did have to hike five miles back to get more fuel and more another water bottle, unfortunately. So you did drop the backpack. Yeah, so I put everything in the tree, and I essentially ran back to Delaware Water Gap. Okay. Yeah.
Good. Yeah. What's that? You don't have to outrun the bear. Yeah. You outrun your friend. Yeah, that's right. Just the slowest in the party, right? Yeah, I was the only one there, unfortunately. <laughs> so that's it. This is the end on Katahdin. Um, again, another whiteout day. You can kind of see the peak there. Um, that's the that's the last mountain of the trail after 168 days uh, being out on the trail. With no trips home, I did have a few days off. I took about 18 days off in that 168, um, which were the days that I showed you, you know, people extending their grace to us and inviting us in or at a hostel or those, those types of things. So You didn't hike back, though, did you? Didn't hike back, no, no. And I, I say if it were 100 miles longer, I would have hiked it. If it were 500 miles longer, I probably would have hiked it, but I was ready to be done. Yeah, yeah I was wow. ready to be done. So you didn't lose your camera? No, I got everything back. Yeah, I was in brush about this tall, and it took me about an hour to find everything, but I was able to gather everything, and yeah. So, that's it. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Did your parents ever want to go with you? <laughs> thank you. So. I didn't leave much time for questions, sorry. Okay, that's right. I didn't know how Yeah. And people ask me, would I do it again? Or people say, oh, I'd love to do that someday. Or no, there's no way I could do that. I think it's really the, the determination, you know, the desire to do it and just stick, sticking to it every day. I think I, will I think about this I think about the trail every year so I mean all the time but every March you know it starts getting a little warmer I'm like oh man I remember those days but it's the I guess um, the stick to itiveness you know uh, if something is hard in life I think well I've done this you know I, it's it's not just the physical but it's the mental as well so getting through that um, and I tell people that too anybody any of you all can do this um, Young to old. I'm serious. There, the, I think the oldest uh, person is like 76 that has through hiked the Appalachian Trail, and the youngest is 17. So there's all all sorts of folks out there um, that can do it. Um, but yeah, I think that would be the, the biggest thing is just you know, and and God putting me in situations that I didn't anticipate. Um, I was up on a, a tall mountain one time and on the trail and we sat around a campfire and I'm reading my Bible I'm just sitting there reading my Bible and somebody says what what are you doing and it allowed me to have a conversation with with multiple people that I kept along the way there was one guy who was Jewish and he and I talked the whole time about what what is the difference between us you know our religions and those types of things so in shelters nightly um, I read Psalm 23 one night, and I look around, and there's people just bawling their eyes out. And a little later, I'm like, what, what is that about? And one girl said, the only time I've ever heard that is a funeral. That's the only time I've ever heard scripture, and it was Psalm 23, and you, you were reading that. I said, well, it's not a funeral scripture. It's a hopeful, it's a joyful scripture. So it, it allowed a lot of those cool conversations. What, how much did it cost? 
What do you think? Twenty five years ago, it's about three, three to four thousand dollars. Because yeah. that's what I had read. Now we're yeah. saying I think five to seven. Five or five to six. Yeah, I'd say. And it depends on how much you spend on gear as well, because a lot of people go ultra light, and you know they have the fanciest stuff. It, it can be very expensive, but I mean you can also go to Bass Pro Shop and buy cheap stuff too. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Do you still do short hikes now? I do. Yeah, yeah. I still like to get out. Not backpacking quite as much um, since since kids, but. Yeah, I love to camp and hike and plan to keep doing it. Yep. Is there a fee to get on the trail? No fee. No, it's free. And there's a few checkpoints. So if you want to be a through hiker, you have to sign a register. Yeah, check in. I think there's some fees now through a couple of the national parks. You know, it's 20 bucks or something like that, but it's not much. Yeah. Uh, shelters and stuff like that. It's just first come, first served. Yeah, first come, first served, and through hikers get uh, get right away. So if if a Boy Scout troop is taking the whole shelter up and a through hiker comes in in the rain, those guys have got to get out or create space. You know, that's kind of the uh, the trail etiquette. So, yeah. All these people still know what a newspaper is. Did you bring the newspaper article? Oh, you know, I've got that right here. Yeah. So the, the Tennessean, yeah, the Tennessean did an article on me before I left and then after I got back. So there I am. Yeah. It, this tells uh, some of the stories about Naked Hiking Day and the, the bear story and a few other things. So... Yeah, that was pretty cool. Back when there weren't many through hikers. Now you know uh, Sarah and Tony McKay. They did the trail together as a married couple. There's another couple of folks here at Otter Creek that have done it. And so we have some friends who did it on their honeymoon. They did. Wow. Yeah. It's too bad. Well, that's. That's one of the other lessons was I was I felt like I was very lucky, you know, through picking this staff up and just keeping going instead of having a, a major injury. The the rain was not real bad that year. Some years you, the through hikers go through hurricanes, or they go through COVID and the whole trail is shut down, you know, things like that. So I think a lot of it comes down to some sometimes life is just a matter of being lucky. You know, being at the right place at the right time. So, what if one of your kids came to you in a couple of years and wanted to do the same? Thing? Absolutely, go for it. Yes, yes, yes. I think she'd be okay with it. Yeah. Even, even one of my daughters. You know, she's eighteen, nineteen years old. I think I would be okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she is the daughter of Mike and Nadine who are hiking as we speak. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Brad, thank Good. you so much. Yeah. It, it was great. Thanks a lot. <laughs>